Hello. The Times called him the doyen of broadcasting reporters. He is certainly one of the best I ever worked with, and in the week when Harry Evans' widow, Tina Brown, the former editor of Vanity Fair, has gathered investigative reporters from around the world to discuss their endangered profession, I thought it would be a good idea to seek the views of my old panorama colleague, Tom Mangold. He started in Fleet Street in the 1950s, at a time when checkbook journalism ruled and it was thought shamelessness was a major skill. He moved to the relatively calmer pastures of BBC News in 1964 and became a war correspondent covering numerous conflicts including Vietnam, Northern Ireland and Afghanistan. He then found himself at Panorama for 26 years, making over 100 documentaries and winning awards for several of them. And just to warn you, in this interview, Tom details some offensive insults directed at him for being Jewish. They are shocking. Here's our interview. Tom Mangold, welcome to the podcast. I should introduce you as television's leading investigative reporter, but all reporting is investigative, isn't it? I mean, what's the difference between a reporter and an investigative reporter? Well, I think you're right. I mean, journalism is, by definition, an investigative process. But there are specialist investigative reporters who will take on much larger subjects and spend much more time investigating them, much more time and much more money. And I suppose they're the investigative journalists with a capital I. I seem to remember you uh, specialised in taking uh, plane tickets to America for a large part of your life as well when you worked for the BBC. Well, I had a fondness for Miami for several reasons, most of which you can imagine. But on the other hand, uh, the truth is that investigative journalism in the United States is so much easier than it is in the United Kingdom. In the United States, the journalist has a constitutional right to ask questions and delve into the background. In the United Kingdom, we still have a fairly semi-secret society. So I found the work much easier in the States, and I found Miami a rather pleasant place to be. Well, I have to say, when I was your editor, you, you always gave me impeccable reasons for going and <laughs> delivered, one, uh, delivered wonderful programmes. But, of course, there's a conference taking place this week in Durham. Tina Brown has organised it, essentially in in memory of one of your heroes, Harry Evans, the former editor of the Sunday Times, and before that, the Northern Echo, of course. And the suggestion there is that round the world, anyway, investigative journalism is getting much, much tougher. Now, it's true, obviously, there are an increasing number of authoritarian regimes making life difficult. But on the other hand, we've had this almost unprecedented access via the digital world to information. So do you think it's getting much harder to be a truly investigative reporter? Yes, I do, and I think there are several reasons for it. The first one is that it is commercially less successful than it used to be. Secondly, it is a hugely expensive business. A good Division I investigative reporter is a very expensive animal. It takes an extraordinary amount of time. There's no absolute guarantee that at the end of the process you will have a product that you can write about or communicate through broadcasting. And finally, and perhaps this should have been the first reason, the extent to which the use of libel actions against organisations doing investigative journalism, the way in which the libel courts are now being used, makes it uh, less and less 
easy to do good investigative journalism. And if you've got a moment, I mean, the best example I can give is when I took on a very large American pharmaceutical company that was making an extremely dodgy sleeping pill. And we spent, maybe under your editorship, I can't remember, but Panorama spent an extraordinary amount of time, money and energy on me and my colleagues to do this. And we, in the end, produced a program that showed beyond any reasonable doubt that the company had dodgy clinical trials, that the way it behaved and promoted the drug was dodgy. Everything about it was not right. We put my program through the BBC lawyers 20 times, and they cleared it, and it was transmitted, and it it had quite an important effect on the future of that dreadful pill. Now, the Americans weren't going to sue us in the United States because they knew they'd never get away with it. But they thought that the British libel courts would be easier to manipulate. And so they sued us in the United Kingdom. And the action was an extremely long one. And the BBC, quite rightly, in my opinion, decided to support the program 100%. And we went through all that. And at the very end of the day... We lost the case because we had been unable to prove the pharmaceutical company's criminal intent. In other words, we couldn't prove that although many things had gone wrong and were very dodgy and dicey and there was a lot of hanky-panky, we couldn't prove, as we had to, that this had been done for criminal intentions and we lost the case. There were no damages against me. Uh, personally, and my journalism and the journalism of Panorama was seen to be 100%, but we couldn't prove the criminal intent, and it cost the BBC about a million pounds in legal costs. And in many ways, I think that became a turning point for investigative journalism in the BBC, and I use that as an example. Since then, things have got far, far worse. And as you know, Roger, somebody only has to threaten a legal action against you, and your first response, in other words, the letter you send back, in itself will cost between 20 to 40,000 pounds to put together. And there are many organizations that simply don't have that kind of money. And it's much easier not to go into the jungle of investigative journalism than take that risk. And they don't have the political will often. In the past, BBC have uh, pulled out of things where it's been politically inconvenient, although in some other cases they have supported quite wonderfully a lot of the journalism. But, I mean, I found the problem as an independent producer going to try and get commissions for this sort of journalism that people wanted to have uh, a guaranteed result before you'd started the investigation. So I would say, look, there are these reasons for doing the investigation. I think this is what we the minimum will get. If we're very lucky, we'll get this. But the commissioner had to say, but you can't guarantee it. So, no. And when I was talking to Peter Taylor earlier on on, on another of these podcasts, he made the point that his reporting in in Ireland was only possible because in between the other assignments or whatever, he would go across, keep his contacts warm. In some instances, keep a story, the one about Brendan Duddy being a go-between between the government and the IRA, for 10 years before you deliver it. So it is, as you say, both an expensive business and one which has no guaranteed result, but one which is essential, well, I would argue, I know you would argue, and 
and it needs the will to publish from broadcasters. If you don't have that, it's, well, it's very, very difficult. But the degree of commitment, and commitment I think is the word, the degree of commitment has to be backed by some kind of legal department that has the money to take on a libel action, many of which begin as a, as a sort of frivolous action. I can give an example in the case of, I've spent a lot of time working on the Martin Bashir scandal, and one of the people I wanted to uh, look more closely at, the degree of involvement of a very senior BBC executive in the whole scandal, in the whole affair, I needed a lot of space and time in which to do the research and write it. And I went to a smaller magazine, a smaller news magazine in Britain. And I said, I don't want a lot of money. <laughs> and they didn't give it to me, I can assure you. But I need a lot of space. Uh, and I need your commitment. Yes, fine, I got all that. So I wrote the piece. And my evidence against the very senior BBC executive I thought wasn't 100%, but there was enough there circumstantially and factually to put his name in the piece. When I contacted him and told him I was writing the story, he immediately got in touch with the magazine and said, uh, if you even mention my name, I shall sue the arse off you and off Tom Mangold personally, and uh, there's nothing you can do about that. So they immediately backed down made me rewrite the piece, effectively take his name out. So all the investigative journalism and the hard work that had gone into naming him wasn't worth anything. And their answer was, look, we're a small magazine. We have a very small profits. Just answering his letter cost us £25,000 and we can't go ahead. That's the case of the dog that didn't bark, which I hope we'll return to in a circumlocutious way a little later in this podcast. But, Tom, can I take you back to the, the start? I want You had one of the most extraordinary careers, as is made clear in your, in your autobiography, Splashed, uh, A Life from Print to Panorama. But it started not in this country, but in Germany uh, in, in 1934. And you, you came across to this country with your mother, I think, what, just before the Second World War. Were you on the kinder transport? No, no, we weren't. Uh, we came over in May 39. My father was a lawyer in Germany, and he was absolutely convinced that the law would work in Germany and that Jews would, in the end, be safe. He was quite wrong about that, and we were extremely lucky to get out when we did in May 39. We were going to go to Mexico, and we were on a Hamburg-America line uh, ship from Bremen to Mexico. And at the last moment, U-boats were spotted in the Atlantic, and the ship stopped at Southampton, and they didn't want to sail across the Atlantic. Uh, so we finished up in the United Kingdom, thank goodness. And you became a Brit. But did you seal that part of your life off? Because when I first met you, I hadn't the faintest idea you, you were either German or Jewish, whatever, and you never referred to that. Did you and your mother make a decision then, essentially, to, to write off the past? No, no, we didn't. No such decision was, was even discussed. My mother essentially wanted to assimilate. She wanted to become British as soon as possible. She could not wait. She found an English teacher who taught her 
English and manners and everything about the Brits so that we didn't stand out as German Jewish refugees. Uh, she wanted to integrate and integrate we did. We were a non-religious family and that past never really played a great factor in my life. And don't forget, I was four when I came over. So by the time I went into proper journalism, I mean, by the time I met you, I was really 99.9% Brit anyway. But before then, in the 1950s, early 1950s, you did national service and you did part of it in Germany. Was that a very strange experience for you? No, it wasn't. It really wasn't, though I recall in 19... late 52... We were stationed in a ghastly place called Oldenburg near Bremen. And we used to go into town and we used to beat up people who still called themselves Nazis or they used to beat us up. But in the end, I came across a running a cigarette smuggling racket, which turned out to be an extremely profitable business. Uh, this was a profitable business for you at this point, yes? Well, it was a profitable business for my entire team. And, you know, we were always hungry in Germany. There wasn't that much food. The army didn't, wasn't top of the catering list. And smuggling cigarettes, I thought I became rather adept at it. But in the end, one of my couriers was caught going over the wire. So that brought an end to that. I'm sure that a lot of your subsequent career benefited for that experience, <laughs> Tom. But you came back, you went into Fleet Street and... Uh, it says in the blurb of your book, you went into Fleet Street in the 50s at a time when checkbook journalism ruled and shamelessness was a major skill. Were you shameless and did you have a checkbook? Yes, absolutely, both. I mean, I, I couldn't... I mean, let me just say in, in a tiny defence, I trained on a fantastic local paper then and now, the Croydon Advertiser. So I had five years of covering fates and obituaries and a women's institute... And I really did have the kind of background because I never, I didn't go to university and I didn't take any journalistic examinations. And you could become a journo in those days without any great difficulty. So I had that behind me, but I couldn't get a job in Fleet Street at all. I wrote scores and scores of letters and I was so keen to go to Fleet Street that I used to take the train from East Croydon to Waterloo and then I'd walk up and down Fleet Street just looking at those magnificent buildings, you know, the Art Deco Daily Express building and the Telegraph building. And I just thought one day I'm going to work in there. So I was a bit of a child in that matter. But when I wrote all my letters to uh, Fleet Street asking for a job, I was told to push off. But in the end, I managed to get some shift work on a paper that was then called the Sunday Pictorial. Today it's the Sunday Mirror. And the Sunday Pictorial was really the reddest of red tops in those days. Well, you quote, you quote in one of your chapter headings, uh, Vic Sims, who was a news editor at the Sunday Pictorial, and the quote is, it doesn't have to be true, it has to be credible. Yes, I've kind of followed that most of my life. But on the Sunday Pic, you just did everything and you applied, you bought people up, you know, you paid them money to work exclusively with you. I mean, for example, I covered the last breach of promise case that was ever heard in the law courts. And the case went on all week. And I brought the girl up who'd been the victim of breach of promise, but most of the material had already appeared in the dailies. So I phoned the office and I said, you know, I, you know, we paid £2,000 to get her. She's a very nice girl, but I've got nothing to say. And they said, well, you know, 
you just spend £2,000 on her, make sure you get page one at the end of the week, and then the phone was slammed down. You know, in those days, we, we had news editors who were not as woke as they might be today. I mean, the number of times a news editor has shouted at me, I thought you fucking Jews were supposed to be clever. And I, I didn't break down in tears, I have to tell you. Anyway, I had this girl. I didn't quite know what to do with her. So I said, well, do you have a new boyfriend? And she said, yes, sort of very casually. And I said, well, what does he do? She said, well, he's a, he's a roof thatcher in Suffolk. So we drove down to Suffolk and he was actually on a roof. And I climbed the ladder and I said, look, I'm from the Sunday pictorial. I'm with whatever her name is. Would you like to marry her? And he said, well, we've only been going out. I said, well, look, the paper will pay for the marriage. We'll pay for everything, including a honeymoon in Jersey, which was then, you know, like going to Miami. And we arranged the wedding. You know, we got her married off and uh, we sent them to Jersey and we got page one out of it. And that was the kind of journalism <laughs> on which I cut my teeth. And how long did the marriage last? Have you any idea? I don't think it lasted very long, <laughs> but but it was a good story. And everybody was a good sport. So we used to, you know, we did used to create page ones. But you seem to have a knack of being in extraordinary places and in extraordinary photographs. If I look in the 50s and 60s, I see you, um, I think I've seen a shot with you with the Craze, for example. Those two brothers who terrorised the East End for a long period managed to avoid being arrested. Did they terrorise you? No, well, with the Craze twins, it's interesting you mentioned Peter Taylor's investment in Northern Ireland. I do believe nowadays, I believe that Jono should invest in certain specialities. And at the time, I was just leaving the Daily Express for the BBC. And the Cray Twins were beginning to get known and get some publicity. And they, they achieved a degree of celebrity in a way that gangsters had never achieved it in Britain before. And I decided to invest in them. And the only way to do that was really to drive to their home in in Bethnal Green, and I did, and I knocked on the door, and this moving telephone kiosk answered the door. And I said, hello, I'm Tom Mangold from Daily Express. And he sort of looked at me with absolute contempt, but in the end he invited me in, and we finished up having tea with Mum, with Violet, uh, the three of us drinking tea with some China cups with little fingers outstretched, and I told them I wanted to invest in them. I thought they were going to be interesting journalistically, and indeed they were. And it was agreed. I told them, look, I happen to be a straight lifer, despite my cigarette smuggling background. And I think that, you know, I'd like to see you every now and then. And I will report on you if you don't mind. And it was agreed. And we formed that kind of relationship. You also found a, formed a relationship with Stephen Ward, as people may or may not remember, with the great scandal that brought down John Profumo because of his affair with Christine Keeler and, of course, the suggestion that a Soviet spy was involved. Stephen Ward was a man in the middle of that, and you got very close to him, and you ultimately believed he was effectively framed, don't you? Yes, I've got no doubt at all that Stephen Ward was framed by an establishment that was looking desperately looking for somebody to atone for the behaviour of John Profumo, who was then the Minister of War, I think. And Stephen was a natural uh, victim. He was soft. He was weak. He was an interesting man. I don't think he ever behaved uh, particularly badly. 
Uh, he was charged, to be specific, he was charged with living off immoral earnings when actually he was a sort of society osteopath who enjoyed having girls like uh, Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis around and, and introduced them to people. But, but the charge was living off immoral earnings, which you never believed yes. he did. No, and uh, he didn't live off immoral earnings and, and the girls were not prostitutes. So, in my opinion, the whole thing was... Uh, set up very carefully by an establishment that came together. In fact, we reported on a, a, a very quiet meeting that was held involving, you know, the Home Secretary and MI5 and MI this and MI that, where the feeling was something was said at that meeting, I think, by the Home Secretary. Who is this chap, Stephen Ward? And that was code for saying, is there anything about him which, with which we can get him? And, of course, the cops did. They went out there. I have absolutely no doubt he was framed. He was put into the box at the Old Bailey. The judge was uh, carefully selected by the then Lord Chancellor to the kind of judge who couldn't imagine three people in the same room all having sex at the same time. And I think uh, he would have been found guilty and sentenced to quite a long term. And of course, he couldn't really face that, which is why he took his life. I was with him on the evening that he took his life. And I tried to cheer him up. I had a pretty bleak feeling that he was going to try something like that. I tried to cheer him up, but I wasn't very successful. No, he took an overdose and lingered a little while, yeah. but then, of yeah. course, died, which was terribly convenient for a large number of people. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's jump, uh, if we may, uh, almost 20 years uh, through. You left Fleet Street, you went to BBC News, you then went to nightly current affairs programmes, and then you ended up in the, well, 1976 on Panorama, and I met you three years later when I became editor. And uh, I have a slight guilt conscience about this, Tom, because... I asked you to investigate an organisation, organisations didn't exist officially, MI5 and MI6, and I remember you being exasperated uh, initially because what could you do? We weren't supposed to refer to them, nobody was supposed to talk about them. And you could go to the United States, as you did, and listen to Senate oversight committees, hold hearings. You could talk to people like the CIA station chief, I think, in London, or Miles Copeland, father of Stuart, the drummer, who you knew well, became a friend of yours. What we couldn't do is tell, tell the British people anything about that. So it was a slog, wasn't it? Well, it was a hell of a slog, and it was commissioned. You then had a boss called John Gow, who was of the same mind as you. And, you, I mean, your editorship of Panorama was highlighted by the fact that you thought we could push further, we could write better scripts, we could say more of what we believed. And the feeling that it was time to look at MI5 and MI6 was such that the decision was taken by you and John to instruct me to go ahead with it. You took that decision when the Director General, Ian Trevowan, was on holiday, uh, something that he was quite angry about when he came back. Well, you see, I operated on the basis that if you keep asking people if you can make a programme, they'll say no. So the first thing is find out whether you can make the programme and then get the arguments and make them have to oppose something you knew you can make. I mean, I think he found out because you went off, rang a number of people like Sadiq White and others who were involved, you knew about. They referred back to 
MI6. They referred then to the to the cabinet uh, secretary, I think, who's liaison on these things. And the DG gets a call about a programme, hasn't yet been made, of course, that he knows nothing about. And then the most extraordinary thing to me about this was he summoned you to a meeting and told you you weren't to tell me, your editor, what happened in that meeting. What happened in that meeting? Tom, Ian Drathown is now dead. Well, <laughs> he... He called me in and sat me down on the most comfortable sofa in, in his big office. And he said to me, you know, Tom, you're the kind of reporter who really stands across his stories. And I thought, he's not called me in here to flatter me. And the flattery went on a bit and my head grew. And then he said, now, this whole business of, of this, this MI5, MI6 story, I don't think this is a good idea, you know. The whole point about a secret service is that it stays secret. So here's what I suggest. I mean, unfortunately, the program will have to go ahead. I, I can't stop it. But what we'll do is we'll get the script checked. I'll get your script checked by Curzon Street, which was then the, the name for MI5. And Curzon Street, and I said, well, I don't, that wouldn't be my script then, would it? I didn't really want to argue with him. I was somewhat in awe of the director general, and I was and always have only been a hack. But he went on about this, and then he said, I don't want you to tell anybody in Lime Grove, which was the office in which I worked. He said, it's it's full of Marxist shits, meaning you, Roger, and John Gow, no doubt. And Ian Trevan, who was hard right at the best of times, did take the view that Everybody in Lime Grove was some kind of communist agent. You said at one time to me that he'd call me a, a little Marxist shit and that he was wrong on at least two counts. <laughs> <laughs> not little, not a Marxist, if somebody wants well, to make he, it. He, uh, the, the feeling was, you know, that there was a conspiracy in Lime Grove. And the problem with the hard right is that it does see conspiracies everywhere. What I was trying to do was simply saying, you know, how is this organisation to be made accountable? How does it define terms such as subversion? How do you get a proper parliamentary oversight about this? All basic, fundamentally democratic questions. But, and as I say, you know, partly the result of me being in the States and seeing what happened with the CIA. So it's slightly baffling all of this to me. I mean, I was naive and you had to face the flak. <laughs> yes, well, I, I didn't have to face the flak because he told me not to say a word to anybody in my office about this extraordinary meeting where he really broke all the BBC guidelines. The thing is that Ian Trudan, as the ultimate news and current affairs supremo in the BBC, interfered with the head of current affairs, John Gow, and the editor of Panorama, yourself, and a reporter, myself, and I didn't think that that was acceptable. And even though he ordered me to say nothing when I got back to the office, I did. And I think I went straight to you and I went straight to uh, John Gow. And the rest is history. Well, we got the programmes out and they did ask the right questions. But I felt very son sorry for your producer. I think it was John Pennygate who had to make bricks without straw. But at least it started the process or helped the process of, uh, you know, of accountability. And now here we are, MI5, I must, they have their own websites, they have their own official histories. You can phone them up. It's a bizarre, it looks bizarre, this secrecy in the past, doesn't it, from today's perspective? 
Well, it's where we were then. I mean, as you say, today, both five and six have got press offices. I was invited by MI6 several years ago to address some of their students. So things have changed. And I think that Ian Javan was just a symbol there of a very old past where you weren't supposed to talk about uh, about these organisations. And it demonstrates the way in which governments are prepared to lean on uh, the BBC. Uh, and it you know, and they have these two things, the charter and the licence fee, and they use them to exert pressure. And you need a robust director general and you need a very robust head of current affairs or journalism. And on the whole, I think the BBC has had them, but unfortunately with one or two exceptions. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, can I jump forward, leave forward? You did lots of wonderful award-winning programmes. Yes. I mean, boringly, the, you know, I can't cite them all, but, you know, Royal Television Society Awards, etc., etc., etc. But let me leap forward to, a, to, the, to the 90s. I was well away by then. And the interview with Princess Diana and the role of Martin Bashir. I think both of us, in a way, quite liked Martin, but were warned about him. And I remember him saying to me, Roger, he looked me in the eye very seriously, you are one of the reasons I came to... No, you are the reason I came to journalism and I always wanted to work with you. The problem is I know at least four other people of whom he said the exact same thing. Did he say it to you? <laughs> no. We treated Martin as all new reporters are treated for about five years. We didn't speak to him and we kept him on the outside of the drinking circle. And we were all having a drink with Martin on the outside as ever in Wood Lane, and he pulled me out of the crowd and he said, Tom, terribly sorry, but I, I just wanted to say, uh, you may know that my brother died last week. And, and before he died, I was with him at his bedside and he said to me, Martin, when you get to Panorama, whatever you do, copy Tom Mangold, copy the way he dresses, the way he walks, the way he writes, the stories he does, and so on. And I was really touched by that, you know, and I said, well, gosh, Martin, I, I'm sorry about your brother. And I mean, that's very, I'm, I'm really flattered. Come and join us for a drink. And I brought him into the inner circle and so on. And I was telling that story to Mike Nicholson of ITV. And he said, he said exactly the same thing to me. And then somebody told me that he'd said exactly the same thing to John Humphrey. So Martin if nothing else, was, and I'm sure remains, a very shrewd operator. But truth and he can sometimes be strangers. Well, if we look at the famous Princess Diana interview, which was an amazing scoop, I mean, I think we can say two or three things about it. First of all, Princess Diana wasn't conned into giving the interview. She wanted to do it. She talked to various other journalists before and so on. Secondly, the attempt to suggest that caused or played a role in her death uh, is, is, I think, entirely wrong. But the third thing we can say with absolute certainty is that I'm afraid that the presenter, Martin Bashir, used disgraceful underhand techniques as a way of getting to her and that you and a couple of other people were deeply disturbed by that and that when you tried to raise it within the BBC, you were told to shut up you were then told, or then subsequently, a press officer was briefed that any criticism of the way in which Martin Bashir got the story was due to jealous colleagues. And that subsequently, in the review that's taken place into what happened, well, the dog hasn't barked in the sense that 
Papers have disappeared and you still believe the truth about who knew what and who covered up what Martin Bashir had done has not yet come out. Yes, I've I've no doubt uh, that that's exactly the situation. And I've seen the BBC in trouble before. I've seen it on one or two previous scandals, which it managed brilliantly to cover up. And why not? You know, the BBC is capable of circling the wagons and killing the Indians as as they uh, shoot their arrows. In this case, in the case of Martin Bashir and Princess Diana, I think the BBC had a very difficult task because it genuinely believed it had a genuine scoop, which had been produced almost entirely on its own by a contract reporter with really no great journalistic hinterland at all. And the truth is that Martin used disgraceful techniques absolutely disgraceful techniques to get the interview. And he lied to to Princess Diana. And none of this, none of this could have happened without his producer knowing. Now, the role of the producer and the reporter in, in Panorama is symbiotic. The producer is responsible for everything the reporter does. He is the BBC's man. He is the chief constable. He has to make sure his reporter behaves, that the reporter's not drunk when he does his interview, that he's an honest man and so on and so forth. Now, in all the coverage of the scandal, the BBC has never, ever mentioned who Martin's producer was. It likes to continue with the fiction that Martin came up with the story, got it all on his own, spent all the money on his own without any kind of budgetary constraint, and delivered the interview on his own. But the truth is he did have a producer, and the producer, who's never been publicly named by the BBC, was his editor. And his editor had to know a great deal of what was happening. But at the same time, the editor, and this is the way the BBC pyramid works, and it works very well, you refer up. Any kind of controversy, you refer up. And that upward referral process is supposed to stop with the head of news and current affairs, who is the director general of the BBC. I have been trying to establish how far up the pyramid all this information went, and it has been virtually impossible to prove one or two things that I suspect. For instance, the BBC has never released, to the best of my knowledge, a single memorandum signed by the then editor of Panorama. So can you imagine he goes through the biggest scandal the BBC's ever known and he never writes a memorandum to every, to anybody? No, well, it's not possible. It's not possible. And I've been to the BBC archives and looked at my own file from that period and it's very copious. People have been copying things all around. But, Tom, there's more than that. I was told by somebody very senior in the BBC that documents have gone missing. It was as if somebody had been through the archive and, as it were, cleansed it. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I spoke to the lady who was head of archives at the time and I asked her how that system worked. And essentially what she was saying was anybody with the rank of editor of Panorama can go to the archives and say, oh, I want to have a look at this, that and the other. He can then steal the documents. He can put them in a folder, walk out. There was no signing in, signing out process. And I think... I'm not making any accusations here deliberately, but I think the archives have been trawled. I think they've been cleaned out. 
And I think that that is an absolute scandal because the paperwork will show us to what extent senior BBC executives were involved in the scandal. Well, Tom, I'd love to continue and talk about lots of other things and programmes with you. Perhaps I will at the future, in the future, but we'll, we'll have to stop there, except for one question. I don't think you'll stop. I mean, you're still right. Have you got, still got programmes you want to do, still got investigations you want to complete? Well, funnily enough, I haven't. And I think with age comes, comes a certain lack of curiosity. I think investigative journalism took a brand new turn with the absolutely brilliant series by Gabriel Gatehouse, The Coming Storm, in which he did several episodes on radio, which I think is the best the best output for investigative journalism now. He did several episodes which showed us the complete background to what happened in Washington on January the 6th a year ago. And I think journalism, investigative journalism, is going in that direction. I think it has to be a little more entertaining. I don't think the panoramas you and I did work anymore. I don't think you can just have 40 or 50 minutes of hard investigative journalism. I think it has to be more entertaining. So I think there's a new form of journalism coming. It's a little more, if I dare use the word entertaining, why can't you make investigative journalism entertaining? I don't think... I'm qualified to do that anymore, but there are some very bright young men and women who are practicing it. Radio, I think, is a superb outlet for that kind of work. And I'm very anxious to sit back and listen and read and watch what these kids are doing, because I think that's the future. Well, I still want more Tom Mangold. Thanks, Tom. It was great to work with you, and it was pretty wonderful to talk to you now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. And Tom Mangold's autobiography, Splashed, is available in paperback from Biteback Publishing. Anne Robinson called it a dazzling read, riveting, raucous and revelatory. And she's right. That's enough ask for now. Next week, we'll be talking to the former Director General of the BBC, Lord Tony Hall, about the future of public service broadcasting. Do let us know if you have any questions you'd like us to put to him. And please do support this podcast. At less than £2 per month, it also gives you access to my thoughts on the week's interview. You can do this easily by using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>